The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. It's uh, Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the opinion editor of uh, Newsweek, and I'm standing in for Leslie Marshall this afternoon. And I've got a whole string of guests, uh, some of whom are deigning to answer the phone, so we can actually talk to them, which would be nice. Uh, but anyway, we've got a, a full afternoon, starting off with, I hope anyway, uh, Joe Coniston, who is, uh, we've spoken to him before, of course, here. He is uh, what used to be a, a very big noise on the New York Observer before the Trumps bought it. Uh, he w- works on uh, the website called The Daily Caller, where he writes a very good political commentary. And he's also the author of a number of books on Bill Clinton, the latest of which, which I recommend to you, is Man of the World, The Further Endeavors of Bill Clinton. And that's published by Simon and & Schuster. And, uh, well, Joe, where do you think well, we are? We've, we've, we've reached a strange place, haven't we? We have reached a very strange place, and it's only going to get stranger, I'm afraid, Nick. Uh, you know, we now have a uh, we have something that resembles all of a sudden the Russian style of government, which is uh, you know a, a burgeoning kleptocracy. It reminds me of when I thirty years ago uh, went to cover the fall of Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines. Uh, you know, the president. Some people are saying, or the president elect, I should say. Some people are saying it seems already to have violated the emoluments clause of the Constitution. And uh, the fact that he brought his daughter into, uh, who's running his business, into a meeting with the Japanese prime minister was also not edifying, you could say. So, uh, yes, we're looking at something new. So, and I would, we're dealing with somebody, a president who has, it's not so much that he's breaking the rules because he knows he's breaking them, he's just doing what the hell he likes and he doesn't care whether he's following the protocol or not. Is that right? I mean, he's, it's not as if somehow he, he knows what the protocol is. It's, it's sort of through ignorance he thinks that uh, you can just uh, bring in your family when you're talking to a head of state and you don't have any of it recorded either, as far as I understand. Right. Well, his, his you know, his, um, his conversations with uh, heads of state when he's in the Oval Office will be recorded because all of those conversations are recorded uh, as a matter of routine, I guess, unless he suddenly orders that they not be recorded. But the, the tradition is that, they're, that all those, what they are called now telcons, are recorded. And uh, it's how we know why Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich, for instance, because his telephone conversations with Ehud Barak, where Barak asked him to do it, uh, issue that pardon were all recorded, and they were released to the to a House committee that was investigating the pardons. So all of those phone calls are recorded. The problem is that they're not accessible unless somebody in Congress subpoenas them, and even then the president can try to stop them from being released. But uh, I think you're right that Trump is just somebody who doesn't pay much attention to rules and how they. Uh, affect people. This is why he had to pay a $25 million settlement for Trump University the other day, which, you know, I mean, uh, that seems to me like a big banner news and something that people might have wanted to pay attention to, but it, it kind of goes by in some ways as the latest outrage. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, there is an irony, of course. Throughout the campaign, Trump was the first in line to accuse the Clintons of having a separate set of rules for everything. When, of course, it turns out that actually Trump well, has his only set of rules. I mean, he, he doesn't even acknowledge that there's a sort of there's, legal, yes, kosher a, way of doing as things. You know, yes, as you know, there's a psychological term for this. It's called projection. Whatever uh, Donald Trump accuses you of doing almost certainly is something that he did or is about to do, <laughs> or has done. Yeah. Fascinating. And this is especially so, no, what, true what, in the case of the Clintons. I mean, you know, his, all of his complaints yeah. about the Clinton Foundation, which is actually a, a very effective and well-run organization, uh, you know, the pay-to-play and the, the idea that a, found, that a charitable foundation was being misused in some way is uh, very much the story of the Trump Foundation, as we learned in the Washington Post from the reporting of David Farenthold. So... Uh, you know, yes, we need to see what he accuses other people of doing and then start to investigate how much of that he's done himself. Now, looking at all the people who've been trooping in and out of Trump Tower, much to the consternation, of course, of the retail trade on Fifth Avenue, which is going bust, I think, because nothing can get anywhere past that uh, sort of clogged artery on Fifth Avenue right now. But looking at all the people going in and out, and at the weekend over at the New Jersey Golf Club, Trump Golf Club, uh, who's the most frightening from your point of view? Well, I'm a bit worried about the National Security Advisor. Uh, he seems like uh, he may be actually sort of uh, have some clinical issues. Uh, you know, he's, he, the other problem about him is he, he too, is seen to have um, changed his mind about an issue. The coup in Turkey uh, and the position of the Turkish government, uh, thank you, as soon as he became a client of, of an ally of the Turkish president. I don't know if you've read those stories about his, um, his connections with the with, uh, Turkish yeah, president. Yeah, he's very close to yeah. President Erdogan. And it turns out that uh, General Flynn, General Mike Flynn, who's going to be the national security advisor, who doesn't need a Senate confirmation, by the way, uh, is is um, now an ally of Turkey, where before he was a critic. And the difference is that they put some money in his bank account. So, uh, you know, this is the kind of, this is exactly how things went in the Philippines for, as you know, you know, decades. We had a case where, you know, Allies of the president, allies of the regime, made lots and lots of money. Somebody wrote to me the other day, you know, some people will tell you that uh, Vladimir Putin is the wealthiest man in the world, in secret. Uh, lots of people think Donald Trump could end up being even richer than his Solomon uh, Putin by the time four years is over. It doesn't take that much to, uh, especially when you have your three kids going around collecting the money for you. So we'll see. I, you know, I hope I'm wrong. I, I certainly hope to be wrong. And it turns out to be as clean as a whistle. But in the meantime, I'll tell you, investigative reporters all over the country are, um, as you know, in your own shop at Newsweek, are um, getting ready for the worst. The best of times and the worst of times. Yeah. It, it, uh, by the way, uh, the General Mike Flynn... 
situation. Uh, the, the guy who's really good on that, he's been writing in Newsweek for us, is a guy called Michael Rubin from the American Enterprise Institute. He was very hot on it very quickly. And he calls that the first ethics breach of the Trump administration, which is appointing a guy who's taken money from Turkey and instantly started spurking, spouting the Turkey line. He also, of course, uh, took money, I think, from RT, the uh, Russian broadcaster, and ended up, there's a great photograph of it, ended up sitting at a dinner table right next to Vladimir Putin. So if you ever doubt that the Trump uh, administration is already in bed with Putin, uh, it's all revealed through General Flynn. Yes. Now, what about uh, well, you know, Sessions? It's, uh, it's, it's, sessions. It's, 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 Sorry, carry on. Who was that? Dr. Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate for president, was in that same photo, sitting across the table from uh, General Flynn uh, as a guest of Putin at the uh, RT anniversary dinner. I don't know if she was personally paid. I want to hasten to add that. But uh, she went over there and gave interviews to RT criticizing the American record on human rights. She had nothing to say about oh the goodness. record on human rights, which made a lot of Russian environmentalists and gay activists and others quite angry with her at the time. But, you know, the idea that Russia was playing a role in our election uh, is not too far-fetched, given the fact that they they hosted uh, Dr. Stein at the same table with uh, Trump's closest uh, national security, um, at that time, small-A advisor. Yeah, well, well, we know, don't we? And it's uh, pretty well established that uh, Putin's part of Putin's soft foreign policy is to sort of buy himself into uh, European uh, elections and parties. He's a great supporter of uh, the fascist Le Pen in France, for instance. He's been very encouraging about UKIP in Britain. Uh, he, what he wants, of course, is the sanctions to be lifted in the European Union. So he's bashing at the Social Democrats in Germany also to get himself a place. Uh, so there's just a bit of yes, a break because his economy also, is down the pan. Yes, he supported the fascist party in Greece as well. Uh, yeah. The gold, so-called Golden Dawn, which are actually Nazis. Uh, so, yes, so you would think the American Green Party would be out of place and all in that roster, but evidently she, she found a way to get quite cozy in, in, that, in that group, which is, you know, dismaying to say the least. Okay, Joe, just hold on there. We've got uh, plenty more to talk about. Uh, this is Nicholas Wapshot, the opinion editor of uh, Newsweek, and I'm standing in for Leslie Marshall on The Leslie Marshall Show. See you the other side of the break. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie Marshall Show. This is Nicholas Wapshot. And uh, I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek. And we've been talking to, and I'm going to continue to talk to, Joe Connison, uh, who, a great uh, political economist, as you probably know, and also the author of Man of the World, The Further Endeavors of Bill Clinton. He's been a great cl Clinton chronicler throughout his life. That's uh, Simon and Schuster, Man of the World. So, Joe, what else? Let's go to further down the list then. Who else have we got to be afraid of in the administration to come? Well, you know, the appointment of the uh, attorney general designate was pretty disturbing, Nick. 
This is a man who could not be uh, confirmed as a federal judge uh, not so many years ago because yeah, this there was is, a long just, record just, of his racism. Yeah, this is Senator so, Jeff Sessions, so that we're, we're not confusing it. Yeah. Yes. Yes, Senator Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, he's, a, he's the first senator to endorse Trump. For a long time, the only one. Uh, and I think that was because he felt a certain kinship with the racial tone of Trump's campaign. I mean, I don't think there was any doubt about that. So when you look at, you know, a situation where states across the South, especially, but in the North as well, have gone out of their way to try to violate the voting rights of minority voters, we now can no longer count on the Justice Department to even give lip service to opposing that. So that's one pretty disturbing aspect. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, Sessions probably has a million other uh, noxious positions on legal issues. But it seems to me that, you know, in a country that's supposed to give equal protection under the law to all of its people, someone with uh, the outlook that Sessions has proved that he has over the years uh, is about as distant from that ideal as uh, we've ever seen, or in many, many years anyway. Yeah. Now, hold on, Joe, because we've got a caller, Ruth from Massachusetts, and she's got another name that she finds even more frightening than the ones we've mentioned already. So, Ruth, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? So tell me who it, yeah, tell me who it, yes. it is that frightens you. Well, um, I'm Jewish, and I'm extremely concerned that we have a president of the United States allowing an alt-right person to be his strategist and his advisor in the White House. I think the first thing that needs to happen in terms of results and protests is a demand that Congress insists that this man not be allowed in the White House. It legitimizes the neo-Nazi movement, the white supremacist movement, the alt-right movement, and it really shouldn't be tolerated in a free democracy. Absolutely. Okay, so this is Steve Bannon we're talking about. He's the guy who used to run Breitbart News, the great alt-right network that's even more extreme than Fox News is. And uh, he was appointed to the campaign. He's become the great strategist, really, for Donald Trump. And here he has been given this. He was actually almost the first person to be appointed, I think. So uh, in his past, we know that he said some wretchedly anti-Semitic things. He plainly has that mindset. Uh, I don't think you can really shrug it off. His first wife managed to log a lot of this anti-Semitism in uh, a court document. So it's not as if he can run away from the accusation that he's anti-Semitic. But uh, it's certainly very alarming. What, what do you think about it, Joe? Well, I agree with the caller. I mean, I think uh, you know his, the appointment of Steve Bannon is is one of the scarier things. You know, it was interesting. Uh, we have an article about this in National Memo, my newsletter today, that the uh, the white supremacists who Bannon has entertained at Breitbart for these several years held a conference in Washington over the weekend. The National Policy Institute. Uh, brought a group of white supremacists together, and they uh, concluded their festivities with, uh, you know, Hitler-style salutes. Pile uh, Trump, basically. So, you know, and this is covered in the media. So it's sort of out in the open who they are, finally. Whether they call themselves alt-right, which was kind of a 
you know, a, a new branding for this uh, neo-Nazi white supremacist movement. But, uh, yes, there they are. And, and the call is absolutely right. The Congress, if they have any guts, will oppose this mightily. The, uh, now, the traditional thing is that a new uh, president comes in with a big pile of political capital. And every time he makes an error, like inadvertently or whatever, appointing someone with racist views, he loses a bit of that political capital. And so over time, all of these errors will mount up, and so we may be appalled, but in fact there is a sort of righteousness to it, because ultimately all of these things will count against him. But that's the old system, that's the sort of pre-Trump system, that's, uh, that's the truth system, but we are in a sort of post-truth world now. So it, it, do you think, Joe, that uh, the President Trump is actually going to be penalized for making these terrible decisions? I hope so. I mean, look, I think uh, that's, that's a, a question for the media, you know, as, as to whether we're, they're able to make people understand what's really going on here and, and what it means. And, you know, one would think that, over day, you know, and I would say Trump seems, you know, surprisingly insecure. I mean, can you imagine that he would do what he did over the weekend, which is to spend a lot of hours tweeting about uh, the show Hamilton, where the vice president-elect was, in his view, insulted by somebody who urged him to do a good job from the stage. I mean, so the fact that Trump feels the need to take up that kind of issue suggests to me that he, he doesn't feel quite so secure. You know, he lost the popular vote by uh, a number that increases every day. So, I, I you know, I think... There is at least the hope that he will be held to a standard that uh, we expect public officials to uphold in this country. But we'll see. Now, we've got a very short time left, uh, so uh, if you could make this pretty short. What do you make of Mitt Romney? Was that a real deal? Was that just for optics? Uh, would Mitt Romney be totally crazy to sign up with some, Trump, somebody who's totally roundly condemned? It's hard to see why he would do that when, you know, he'd be surrounded by people like, uh, you know, Steve Bannon and uh, General Flynn. But, uh, you know, if, I guess that's what they were talking about when he went to see Trump in New Jersey, was what kind of an administration it was going to be. Uh, you know, given everything else that we've seen, you kind of have to hope that Mitt Romney does go in there, at least for a while. And yet, no one—I mean, no one would uh, would mind if Mitt Romney said, "Thank you very much, but I've got you know gardening to do." Anything better than that? Anyway, thank you very much, Joe Connison. You've been a great help in trying to get to grips with this extraordinary event that we are watching. Um, it's almost live on TV, like a reality show. Uh, the new Trump administration being lined up. See you after the break with Neil Buchanan. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm uh, sorry if you're tuning in to listen to Leslie particularly because she's not uh, on this afternoon. I am instead. My name's Nicholas Wapshot, and I am the uh, opinion editor of Newsweek. And uh, we have now have uh, as a guest one of the regular contributors to the opinion section of Newsweek. And he, I must say, the inscribe these frightening events that we're currently living through uh, does us all a lot of good. Uh, I think readers look forward very much to his sort of rational understanding and explanation for what we're witnessing. Because I don't think any of us have ever been here before. His name is Neil Buchanan. He's an economist and legal scholar, and he's a professor of law at George Washington University. Neil, welcome. Uh, I think it's good to be here, Nicholas. 
<laughs> I do. We haven't, we haven't got much option. I mean, you know, the, this is our life, whether we like it or not. We might have hoped it turned out another way. Yeah. But, I mean, looking at it, just looking at the big picture of it, um, because it is a special circumstance, isn't it? Can you think of anything like it that's happened, well, let's say within our living memory anyway, where a total maverick outsider has come in and uh, taken over the chief reins of office, the leadership of the Western world? Can you think of anything like it at all? Well, in terms of the political significance, a pale, pale uh, uh, memory uh, would be when Reagan took office, um, because that really was, at the time, quite revolutionary. He was absolutely not the uh, the first choice of the uh, of the Republican establishment. Um, he was expected to lose quite badly. Um, but but honestly, I, I to me it, uh, the. I, I think that the comparison that I would uh, uh, draw is not to a political event, exact, well, it was sort of a political event, but 9-11. Um, and the reason I'm thinking of 9-11 is because that is the only time I can think of in my life in which I have simply been scared about what might happen next, especially in terms of the sort of likelihood of a government crackdown that could be irreversible. Um, and so that's why, you know, I, I, I really have spent the last couple of weeks sort of struggling to think like, okay, you know, what, uh, you know, what is the closest uh, uh, example? And then, and we know that after 9/11 happened, there was a lot of overreaction. Uh, the the Patriot Act and the, you know, frankly, the the Iraq War, you know, was it was pretextual, but but you know, that was the, uh, was what followed. Um, and uh, and so now, you know, and, and, and the difference is that people have been predicting this for as long as Trump has seemed like an even semi-plausible candidate, and yet he managed to thread the electoral needle and get not a majority of votes, but just votes in the right places, um, and now he's acting like he won by a landslide. Yeah, that's a really puzzling thing, isn't it? I mean, there you are, you're a professor of law. Uh, and a great legal scholar, but it, if, if you take the in United, uh, United Kingdom, for instance, 51.5% voted to leave the European Union, and 485 voted not to leave, to, to yeah. remain. And the, the, the minority, which is, a, we're talking 50-50 in any rough terms, and yeah. that half of the majority in the UK, of course, are still fuming that this thing was stolen from under their noses, and something so important should be lost to... Uh, the United Kingdom, it literally costs in terms of money and uh, so on, uh, on yeah. such a slender outcome. In this case, it's even more perverse because rather like in 1960 when actually Nixon beat uh, Kennedy to the popular vote, uh, or indeed in 2000, I guess, when uh, Gore beat uh, Bush to the popular vote, in this case, as you say, it's amazing audacity to sneak past without, with fewer Americans than Hillary got, and at the same time you say, well, full steam ahead, I'm going to appoint some of the most frightening people on earth to my cabinet and see how they get on. Yeah, and I think that the, the comparison to the Brexit vote is interesting because there are ways in which Brexit could lead to uh, um, some seriously irreversible, horrible things in, in the U.K. and Europe more generally if, it, if it's part of uh, um, a series of dominoes that leads to Le Pen winning in France and a number of things that could really you know, sort of cause a, a collapse of Europe. 
Um, but what you know, what what the American well, let, but before I, I I come back to the United States side, it is possible that um, although some damage could happen in the interim in the UK and in Europe, if things don't go that badly, that people could figure out, yeah, that was a really bad idea. There will be some sort of um, you know, re-entry or uh, a, re- a reformation of the EU. Um, you know, so th- there's there's a, the sort of not exactly optimistic because of all the costs in the interim, but non-apocalyptic um, uh, way of thinking about uh, uh, you know such a, a close thing going going in the wrong uh, the close vote going in the wrong direction. Here, you know, the 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 popular vote being what it was, and you know the electoral votes just just the sliver of thin majorities in in these key midwestern states um, creating the electoral majority but you don't need more uh... dominoes to fall for this to become truly horrible i mean one of the things that i wrote about last week is that the the republicans have spent a generation trying to figure out ways to make uh... elections non-competitive anyway um, and Trump is exactly the kind of person who is going to try to make sure that he never loses. Um, and so, you know, it is possible. I mean, I hate to, to, to sound apocalyptic, but, but this is one of the reasons I'm scared, is that it seems quite possible that the result of this is that future elections will be essentially shams. Um, and if that happens, then you know what we, we we just don't have the political system or the legal system that we thought we had. Yeah, just explain how that is going to work because it's true that he's got the House and he's got the Senate. He will have the court and he has the executive. That's all you need, really, to impose a form of authoritarian regime, whether whether we like it or not. Usually, right. when uh, these sorts of mavericks uh, get themselves elected, uh, they find some sort of pretext. I'm thinking of uh, uh, the, uh, the fire in Berlin, which set off uh, Hitler's ability to just dismantle the rule of law. Which is that somehow he won't actually need to find a pretext because he's got all the ducks in a row anyway. And what's more, for the sort of people he likes, uh, he could, if he wanted to, uh, start imposing some sort of law which is uh, slightly less liberal than the one we're used to. Is that right? Uh, more than slightly. I, I, the, 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 the part of this that, that I find interesting, and I wrote about this in my column that showed up on Newsweek uh, this past Friday evening, is that he, even if he didn't have the Supreme Court, even if he didn't have both houses of Congress, one of the things about a, uh, somebody with an autocratic bent like, like Trump clearly has is essentially an attitude where he says, who's going to stop me? Um, and at this point, you know, there are people who have been saying, well, Mitch McConnell and, and, and uh, uh, Paul Ryan, you know, have institutional prerogatives that they care about. They don't want to allow the, the presidency to become overly strong. But, but frankly, that doesn't give me a lot of confidence if those are the guys that are standing in the way of Trump. Um, and so, the, you know, what worries me now is that they're going to essentially uh, uh, let him do anything he wants, especially because that will mean that, you know, I mean, part of making future elections essentially non-competitive 
is just an acceleration of what they were doing for their own uh, uh, members of Congress anyway. Yeah, so the House is already fixed. I mean, Trump is yeah. right when he said the system's fixed, but it's actually fixed in favor of Republicans mostly, isn't it? How, yeah. how difficult would it ever be for the Democrats to get the House back? Well, there were some some uh, estimates that showed up in the various uh, 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 statistical uh, forecasters, right, who, by the way, I think have gotten a really bad rap after the, the – uh, the election, but 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 that's a separate issue. But anyway, they they basically said that there is a you know a rough formula, I guess, that boiled down to it would have needed to be about a 55-45 win for Clinton in the popular vote, um, or you know to put it differently, a really huge landslide, which at, you know at a couple of points in the election looked possible, like you know right after the the Access Hollywood tape came out, for example. Um, but it would have taken that big of a landslide for the House to be flippable, as, as, as it were. And the, and, and, and the reality is that now they, the, the Republicans and Trump have every reason to do everything they can to make that even more of an uphill climb for, for Democrats and, and basically for anybody who opposes them. So that, I, you know, the, the, the little bit of hope I, I continue to hold out is, that it will at least take some time for it to become to to be, to be irreversibly fixed, and there are reasons for people to fight and prevent it from becoming irreversibly fixed. But I don't think that we're doing ourselves any good by pretending that the, that, that that this isn't going to start happening. Goodness, this is a really black conversation, Neil. Yeah, I warned you when I started that, you know, you, you said welcome, and I said, well, I, I, I think yeah. you're going to like this conversation. <laughs> no, but uh, no, okay, Let, now let's pretend for a minute that I'm a moderate Republican. Wouldn't I say, but there are people like Senator McCain, they're very reasonable people, and also they're, they're, even conservatives on the court won't allow sort of fascism to sneak in by the back door. Aren't, could, aren't we going to rely upon those people who are, have been the swing people, actually, for the last 10 years, really? Well, I, I I can see the argument, and 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 I do I want to leave open the you know the the, the somewhat optimistic possibilities there. Um, I do think that uh, the way McCain handled himself in this election does not uh, provide a lot of reason for optimism on him. Um, strangely, I think that you know the the, the, the uh, Chief Justice Roberts. I think might be a source of possible strength. Um, you know, he he had the, the the backbone to uphold the Affordable Care Act twice, um, and uh, um, and you know, and 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 has has disappointed uh, conservatives in uh, movement conservatives in a couple of ways. Um, and, and and you know, so I do have that sliver of, of optimism. On the other hand, I am back to. The you know there's the famous maybe true story about Andrew Jackson saying when he was president that the Supreme Court had ruled against him. Now let's see the Supreme Court enforce it. Um, and you know that sounds pretty Trumpian to me. So that even if uh, if Chief Justice Roberts is able to put together a majority that says you can't do this or you can't do that, then you know um, who's to say that they can enforce it. Absolutely. If you've just tuned in, this is uh, Nicholas Wapshaw. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek, and I'm standing in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm talking about with Neil 
Buchanan, who's an economist and legal scholar and a professor of law at George Washington University, and he's a regular contributor to Newsweek. And uh, so I'm trying to not to get too depressed here. Otherwise, I think I'm going <laughs> to, I don't know. I've got a loaded revolver in my desk and maybe use it. I mean, I'd, I'm not sure, you know, could, could we survive in such a place? I'm just thinking that... Surely the whole system of the American system is, means that actually a strong executive really can't, can't govern properly. Even if you have all of the ducks in a row, the Senate and the House and everything else. The, the fact is that they, they are such unwieldy bodies. They have such divided populations within them. Nothing is strictly red-blue in the United States. Uh, yeah. Not like it is in the Western European countries where you might have party discipline, which is strict. Here, you get quite a lot of overlap, particularly in the Senate. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, you're being pessimistic, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, eternal vigilance, of course, is the only way that we can ensure that something bad doesn't happen. But looking down the list of people who have already been ushered into uh, the, the presence of uh, King Donald, uh, who do you think uh, is the most frightening of them all? Bannon, um, easily. Uh, and that's saying a lot because of the, others, well, the other ones are bad. I mean, in almost any other uh, situation, you could name any of them and say, oh, my God, that guy's awful. But Bannon is so much, you know, above and beyond. Um, because if, if, if there's going to be the optimism that you're, you're hoping for and that I am hoping for, uh, you know, reasons for optimism, it has to be from some combination of Trump not really caring about the details enough um, and and the problem is that Breitbart uh, uh, people and Bannon is obviously um, that the, the head of that organization are exactly the kind of people, along with a lot of movement Republicans, who would be happy to go into a, an administration and, and make matters uh, and, and you know lock things down that Trump wouldn't have the attention span for. Um, so I do think that that that, that Bannon, uh, Bannon is the worst. I, I, and and but but I will say that that you're right that there are a lot of good things about a big sprawling government and the uh, the, the the petty jealousies. I'll, I'll give you. I, I know we only have a minute or two left, and I I, I hate it when I hate it when I, I I talk too long. But but I'll, I'll just give give you a quick analogy. Um, one one of the, the the things that the United States has never had in its history is a military coup, and and one of the reasons um, I think that, uh, that I've read that that, that is the most uh, uh, convincing as to why it has happened in other countries but not here is that we have um, the, the various services Army Navy Air Force Marines and they have built-in rivalries. They, you know, they just can't stand each other. You know, they're like movies where they get in bar fights with each other when there's, you know, um, Marines and Navy guys in the same bar, right? Um, and, you know, and that, that filters up to the highest level. And so the, the, you know, what happens is if you sort of imagine a strong man trying to do a military coup, it's essentially, you know, well, that guy's an admiral. We hate admirals. He's a Navy guy. Um, so I think the analogy here is, you know, to the United States uh, 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 federal government in general and to Congress in general and saying there are enough people with big enough egos and big enough, you know, sort of reasons to, to guard their turf that there might be uh, surprising breaks on the kind of extreme uh, action that, that, that I was positing before. That actually, I, I kind of feel a little bit better, you know, with you having prompted me to, to come up with that, that, that line of thought. Good. Well, I, I, I'm grateful, too, that uh, 
that we're not so depressed. We're going to have to talk about this more often, though, Neil, because it's gone beyond politics. We're now into sort of psychology, aren't we? Uh, we've got a break coming up. Uh, Neil, thank you very much. A very, very good section, which we all enjoyed. We'll see you after the break when we've got to talk to Talk Media News to find out what's going on today. Marshall Show. Uh, my name is Nicholas Wapshot, and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek, and I'm standing in for Leslie this afternoon. And uh, now we get a, a chance to talk to people who actually knew, know about new stuff. Mostly of the, the guests that I speak to uh, pick it up secondhand, the news. But Luke Vargas, actually, of uh, the Talk Media News, uh, has some uh, real fresh information, I understand. Uh, first of all, we're talking, we've spoken about everybody else, but we haven't spoken about the Defence Secretary, Luke. Uh, who's the tip for the top at the moment? Yeah, it looks like retired Marine Corps General James Mattis, with the nickname Mad Dog, is being talked about here. It's sort of a intense-sounding name, but he's a personality that uh, actually seems to be quite different than Trump. Here's a guy who is rumored to have 10,000 books in his personal library. He's a big reader. He prescribed reading lists to all the soldiers he served uh, or he commanded in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, very popular among the military rank and file, which is a pretty important thing for a Trump administration, a guy who led to, you know, caused basically a hemorrhaging of support among, uh, you know, current and former military leaders during the campaign, desperately needs now to bring a lot of those sort of career military guys back into the fold. And I think Mattis, if he is, uh, you know, actually tapped for this, might be able to help Trump repair his standing with the military. So I would look to see, given all the positive reviews about this guy, an announcement perhaps in the next few days on this position. Uh, tell me, uh, as far as you understand it, is he more or less hawkish than Trump? Because Trump wobbles. First of all, he doesn't really like wars at all, but at the same time, he's always threatening sort of big, tough guy stuff to his uh, his enemies. So, yeah, well, Mattis, Mattis has said yeah. uh, repeatedly he's not an isolationist, that he thinks American um, engagement with the world is, is important. And I also think he, if he were to be tapped, though, he would have sort of a mollifying effect on General Flynn, who, a lot of, who is now the national security advisor, and makes a lot of people nervous. I mean, I've talked to Flynn a number of times, and he just seems over-caffeinated, and uh, he's a guy who kind of uh, makes me a little bit concerned about hyping up threats instead of trying to contain them. And he will be outranked, or would be outranked, by Mattis. And so that, that's an interesting, perhaps, uh, I hate to say stabilizing, but perhaps calming force within the Oval Office that I think might give some people a sigh of relief. Okay, now, and I understand that uh, President-elect Trump has been talking to the Argentinian president. What, what's that all about? Keep it brief. I mean, we talked about nepotism last week in that meeting with uh, Shinzo Abe. Apparently, in a congratulatory call from the Argentinian president, Trump didn't talk about geopolitics. Instead, asked that his high-rise office tower in Buenos Aires be sped up and approved by the Argentinian government. So there you go for draining of the swamp. Looks like he's uh, out to... Uh, Benefit his own business interests <laughs> using uh, the office of the U.S. presidency. I mean, that's certainly a worrisome development. It's unbelievable, isn't it? The, uh, was Ivanka present in this meeting? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I will say these two guys know each other going back to the 80s. Uh, Macri, the president of Argentina, actually is part of sort of a real estate family, and they have 
dealt with the Trump before. So, okay, you know, there's okay, a Luke story. Fargus. Thanks very much indeed. That's all we got time for. See you after the break. Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Nicholas Wapshot, and I'm self-identifying as a male uh, for the next hour, standing in on the Leslie Marshall show for Leslie herself, who's somewhere else. I'm not quite sure where. Having a good time, I hope. Uh, anyway, we're, we've got a good time because we are in the middle of this extraordinary uh, transition period as uh, the outgoing Obama administration hands over the reins to the people who uh, Donald Trump is uh, well interviewing uh, as if he was interviewing for a... a auditioning, as it were, for a sort of reality TV show. And to try to make some sense of this, uh, we have our old friend uh, who was the founder of the New York Sun. He's a great conservative. He's the smartest conservative that I know. It's always great fun to talk to him. And he's also a syndicated economist. And he is Ira Stoll. Welcome, Ira. Great to be here again with you, Nick. Well, things have changed since we last spoke on the air. <clears throat> last time, if I could describe your opinion at the time, it was sort of equanimity. Is it, you know, if the people choose to do a crazy thing, that's up to them. Let's see how it turns out. And you sort of got your way. Uh, well, I didn't vote for Trump, so I can't really say that I got my way. Um, but uh, we are going to see what happens, and we ha- we are going to have this test of this proposition that, uh, you know, he's, a, he's either a crazy person and a disaster and the scariest thing to come down the pike uh, in recent American history, or he's just, uh, you know, a Republican whose policies people may disagree with, but uh, when the four or eight years are over, uh, the republic is still intact. Yeah, it's, a, it's about as risky a place as the Western world has been in since sort of 1945 in terms of leadership. I can't think of anyone else who's sort of got close to, you know, sending the chills up all of our European allies, for instance. Uh, well, you know, I, I think that the European allies, there was a lot of talk about the rift between the European allies and George W. Bush during the Iraq War when, he, you know, Rumsfeld was talking publicly about old Europe yeah. and... Uh, yeah. You know, France and Germany weren't on board with the Iraq War. And, you know, some of the, if you look back at some of the rhetoric that accompanied President Reagan's election, or, you know, even somebody was was pointing out on Twitter today that uh, the Vice President Biden was warning, uh, warning black audiences about Mitt Romney, that uh, he wanted to put them all back in chains. So, you know, I, I, you know with, yeah. with the exception of, uh, though, of, of uh, probably rare overreactions like that, I think it's safe to say that in my memory, which, which at least goes back, uh, you know, in terms of politics to the, to the 70s and 80s, and, and then I've written books about the 60s, uh, 
I, I don't remember. I mean, people were warning about about Goldwater that it, it would be like this if he were elected, but but you know he didn't get elected. So so <laughs> we really are uh, we are in new territory. Yeah. So we got some clues coming. Uh, sort of dribbling through day by day. And the initial appointments uh, are more alarming than um, stay calming, I would say. Uh, starting off with, uh, I'd be very interested to hear what your point of view on this, about Steve Bannon, who seems to have a pretty well-established, recorded in legal documents, anti-Semitic history. Oh, I've been defending Bannon on the anti-Semitism charge. Uh... Uh, you know, I, I actually wrote a piece for this Jewish newspaper, The Algaminer, saying that if I had to choose uh, between Steve Bannon and Arthur Salzberger Jr. on the on the question of who's better for the Jews, I'd I'd stick with uh, I'd stick with Bannon. Uh, you know, okay, there, but, but, there may be other reasons to object to Bannon. Um, but you know, look, uh, Nick, we're both editors. If you're going to judge an editor who publishes thousands of pieces by the craziest comments in the comments section online <laughs> or by, you know, one or two yeah. provocative headlines, I, you know, I, I'm entirely I'm guilty. I'm guilty. <laughs> I'm perfectly prepared to say that, you know, it's possible that some of Trump's picks are going to be uh, racist or objectionable. But what they've come up so far, at least that I've seen on Bannon, and, yeah, I'm prepared to be, uh, you know, shown evidence on this. It's not stuff that he said. Uh, it's not even stuff that he wrote. It's stuff yeah, that maybe his true. website published that other people wrote. And people seem unable to distinguish between what, in newspaper terms, is an op-ed or a staff editorial. I mean, they, they want to blame this guy for every comment ever posted on the Breitbart website, which to me just seems insane. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And it's a misunderstanding of the way that journalism works. And uh, on the other hand, there's no doubt that he ran Breitbart as a sort of a tack dog, didn't he? Uh, there was uh, this was sort of tabloid plus. I mean, there's nothing the New York Post. I mean, New York Post seemed, you know... Uh, Positively quaint compared to the way that Breitbart would attack issues. Uh, anyway, let's go on down the line. What about uh, General Flynn? What do you think about him? Well, Flynn is an interesting situation. Now, people are attacking him for being an Islamophobe, but they're also attacking him for being a paid agent of uh, the, the, the head of Turkey, uh, Erdogan, uh, who's, a, who's an Islamist himself. So it's almost enough to make you think that they're what they're not against is not Islamophobia or people being agents of Turkey, but against Flynn. Uh, you know, the people I talk to in Washington tell me that Flynn isn't necessarily the brightest uh, bulb, uh, but uh, he's certainly a hardliner against Islamic extremism, and uh, I think that maybe what a lot of people wanted when they elected Donald Trump, who was warning, you know, to, pr promising to ban Muslims from entering the country and uh, faulting Obama for allowing ISIS to blossom. So, uh, you know, and same with Bannon. I mean, if Bannon is a bit of a bore or a coarse or uh, 
aggressive. You know, that's what Trump has been during the campaign. So yep. to some extent, you know, but the president's going to pick people who are going to implement the agenda he ran on. Yep. Okay. And he's also rewarding loyalty, isn't he? I mean, if you were in the boat early on, then you're getting the, the big prizes, like Jeff Sessions, first senator to step up, in fact, almost the only senator to step up and say he supported Donald Trump. And he gets his reward. As, I don't know what sort of reward it is. What sort of uh, attorney general will Jeff Sessions be, do you think? What will he be prosecuting? Because, I mean, there's an enormous amount of leeway for an attorney general to pursue political uh, uh, claims, if you like, through the courts. What do you think he's going to do? Well, he's been an extreme hardliner against against both legal and illegal immigration, and uh, I would say of the hundred senators, he's the he's the hardest line of all of them on that issue. And you know, I think you'll see federal prosecutors going after immigration law violations. Uh, I, I find that uh, that too bad, but again, it's something that that Trump ran on and. The only hopeful sign I see is someone who supports more immigration and freer immigration is that uh, potentially getting Jeff Sessions out of the Senate uh, creates some space for a compromise or a, a law to be passed on that issue that's, that's perhaps less extreme than he might want. But I may be guilty of wishful thinking on, on that one. Yeah, well, it would be a, a very good idea. Uh, certainly to try to, I mean, if, we, if we've finally broken the logjam, let's at least get immigration fixed. I mean, there are many, many things that really have been held up that need to be, that actually there's a general agreement on both sides that something needs to be done. And so, uh, anyway, don't go away. I'm talking to Iris Dahl, uh, who is a great friend of mine and a, a fine journalist and columnist, uh, founder of the Dark Sun. And so uh, we will be back uh, after this break. Leslie Marshall, The Simple Truth in a Complicated World. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek, and I'm standing in for Leslie this afternoon. And uh, my, the guest that I've been talking to for a little while, and have got a little longer, is uh, Ira Stoll, the great uh, conservative columnist and founder of the New York Sun. Now, uh, Ira, tell me this. What do you make of the strange minuet between uh, Trump and Mitt Romney? I would say the, a clash of cultures of some profundity there. One bummed out still, and the other one, you know, pushing it around. Quite interesting. Well, I, it would be nice to have some people serving in the administration with a net worth under three or four hundred million dollars. I mean... I mean, look, Trump is said to be attracted to Romney because he looks the part. Uh, central casting secretary <laughs> of state, uh, tall, handsome, square-jawed. 
And, you know, you spoke of it at the opening as if he was casting for a reality TV show. And, um, you know, (laughs) there's a certain element of that, right? I mean, Obama picked uh, Hillary, who was also a presidential candidate for that job. And, and, um, uh, you know, Bush picked Colin Powell, who was talked about as a possible Republican or independent presidential candidate. And Romney, uh, even though he, he lost the election to Obama, has a certain uh, perhaps presidential bearing. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see if it happens. I think, I think uh, some people might be heartened if, he, if Romney is in because he has a kind of mainstream uh, appeal to him. On the other hand, uh, you know, everybody we've talked about so far is is a white male. And, you know, I think Trump really needs to, if he's going to ease any of the anxiety uh, among the, the minorities in this country about uh, hate incidents or, or you know, about uh, his supposed ties to the so-called alt-right uh, you know, he, he really should try to at least announce these people accompanied by some some cabinet members of color or some some women. Um, you know, otherwise it's just going to look like, uh, you know, make America great again is 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 code for, you know, turning back the clock on 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 civil rights and diversity. Yep. Absolutely true. Now, we've got a caller, Nick, from California, who's uh, taking issue with you, Ira, about uh, letting Breitbart off the hook for uh, allowing the headlines of the other stories and so on through, as if he was a, a gatekeeper who actually didn't rather like to play on the rough side. Uh, so anyway, Nick, if you're there, explain yourself. Okay, well, here's the... I, okay. Um, listen, I just noticed that... Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting a lot of feedback. Am I, are you hearing me okay? We hear you fine. Okay, good. Well, I'll just ignore the feedback. Okay, here's the deal. Uh, Ira, I think it's Ira is the person's name. He said that, you know, Steve Bannon was just the editor, so we can't really blame him for all these articles that have shown up on these website, on his website that he edited. Okay? So what's an editor's job, anyway? Maybe you can explain to me, because I thought he was supposed to read the articles and then approve them. That's a great question, then. So, Ira, uh, explain why an editor very often allows things into his newspaper or on site nowadays that they wouldn't necessarily write themselves. Well, I, first of all, uh, you know, Bannon was the chairman of this company. He wasn't the editor. He had an editor working under him. But second of all, you know, a lot of news organizations are big enough that the top editor or the publisher doesn't see everything before it gets in. And even good editors who do see things allow things to appear in their publication that they don't agree with. Maybe they think that a diversity of views should be aired. Maybe they uh, want to publish some provocative articles and headlines to appeal to readers who don't agree with them. Uh, you know, for example, the New York Times has published op-eds from uh, representatives of the Hamas terrorist group or from the foreign minister of Iran. 
I don't think that means the editor of the New York Times agrees with Iran that homosexuals should be hanged or that uh, Israel should be wiped off the map. But they just think that uh, there should be a, a diversity of point of views that should be aired in a, in a publication. Uh, Absolutely. Can I have one more carry question? On, carry on, Nick. Yes, Nick. Carry All right. on. Uh, so you're comparing Brett Bart News to the New York Times? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think in, in calling the outcome of this election, uh, Breitbart got it right. And the New York Times was telling people up until the afternoon of Election Day that Hillary had an 85% chance of getting elected. And, and the weekend before the election, they had a front-page article about the unprecedented tide of Hispanic votes that was going to that was going to assure Hillary a victory. I mean, even they had a, the publisher and editor of the New York Times had to write an unprecedented letter to subscribers, basically uh, all but apologizing for their coverage of the election. Even their own public editor had a piece uh, on Sunday saying even liberal readers of the New York Times are calling up to say they want less of a liberal, uh, self-reinforcing bubble and more actual diversity of views telling them what's going on in the country. So, so yeah, I'd be happily compare the two. And you may have been All right. off in this election relying on the bright part. I wouldn't compare the two. And let me explain why. Okay, because the New York Times was correct. There is a so many anomalies. On, there was so much uh, voter intimidation. There was so much. The lines were a half a mile long, and where these uh, uh, the, the outcome came right down to like ten or fifteen thousand votes. There was a lot of shenanigans, and I want. I think that should be investigated by the New York Times. I know Brett Hart's not going to do it. Okay, Nick. Thanks very much for your point. Now, uh, caller Shane, I'm afraid we haven't got time to go to you, Shane, but you left a good message from Reno, Nevada. And uh, what you're asking, which is a very good question, we haven't got very much time to talk about it, Ira, but simple question is this. What are the chances that Trump actually builds his wall? Well, I think there are a lot of contractors salivating. I mean, there's a lot of money involved. Uh, he, he came out and said that some of the wall may be a fence. But, you know, with a Republican Congress, I, I, I think people are going to be uh, people are going to be happy to do it. Whether Mexico is going to pay for it or not is, a, is another separate question. But uh, I don't know if I owned a concrete company or a metal fence company, <laughs> I, I'd be pretty happy. I mean, I'd be I'd be getting my Ira papers ready. As always, Ira, a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, we will be back after the next break with yet another guest, uh, Matt Cooper, who is the political editor of Newsweek. And uh, I haven't spoken to him since the election either. It'll be very interesting. See you after the break. To the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, this is Nicholas Swapshot. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek, and I'm standing in for Leslie this afternoon. And uh, my next guest, uh, I've spoken to before, but I haven't spoken to him since the election and uh, all that's followed it. So I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, Matt Cooper, 
political editor of uh, Newsweek. Tell me, how are you? Have you? How did you survive the election? Did you did you drink as many martinis as I suggested? <laughs> <laughs> I tried, Nicholas. I don't know if I could keep up, but I I tried. It certainly helped. <laughs> and, and I guess the result took you by surprise, like it did everybody else. I mean, you know. I wish, you know, I was pretty, I feel like I was pretty prescient on his success in the primaries, but I got I got snuckered like everyone else when it came to the general election. I, I really, uh, I, I believe those polls, and even more, I, I, I believe the Nate Silvers of the world with their, you know, she has an 85% chance of winning type analyses. So, um, yes, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't see it coming. Yeah. Uh, was it looking back on it? Was it an enjoyable campaign to uh, observe and to you know look at, at close quarters? I mean, some campaigns have a spirit to them which is good fun. I mean, I think the, the Clinton election, for instance, was, or the Kennedy election, plainly was. But this, did this, there was quite grim in places. I wonder whether that meant that it actually was rather a blacker event to cover than normal. I, I think it was uh, grimmer than most. I think the fact that most. Americans held both uh, Trump and Clinton such disregard, sort of, you know, sours sour the mood of the whole thing, and um, and and that had an effect. So it wasn't, you know, it certainly had its its, you know, it's always historic to cover a presidential campaign. It's always interesting, um, but I, I wouldn't say it was quite as uh, uplifting an experience as others I've I've done. And uh, did you? Uh, did you sense that when mixing with... I don't know how open the Trump team were. I guess they weren't very open. I mean, they were mostly on the TV all the time, Kellyanne Conway and so on. I don't know what access they gave the sort of writing press. But they seemed very much to be in a sort of bunker for most of the election. Did I get that wrong? Or were they sort of... Open? No, no, I, I mean, I think you're right. The, um, uh, the thing is that it was so different than other campaigns because the, the uh, staff was so small. He really did, you know, for much of the campaign, you could have put the whole Trump apparatus in a van. And uh, there just weren't a lot of people who who knew uh, what was really going on. The sort of the, the, you know, for a reporter, the circles of knowledge were much smaller and thus, thus harder to penetrate. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, exactly. Very, very puzzling. And he seems to be doing the same thing in the transition. And he's sort of marking out the fact that he is going to be, uh, you know, so almost it's none of your business. You know, we're just getting on with the stuff and, you know. Do you well, think there's a sort of isolation already? It's almost Nixonian, I got a, I got a sense. Yeah, well, I think the, you know, the not, the not, the breaking with the 40, plus your precedent of, of releasing one's taxes set a, set a tone for a lot of things. And so, um, you know, he, he got away with not releasing his taxes. And, uh, you know, I think that'll, you know, we'll have the same kind of, it'll be just as opaque when it comes to his business and uh, what his kids do and other things. So, you know, we'll just see. So will there be a lot of uh, senators and congressmen on the Democratic side who are sharpening their knives now, uh, setting about trying to work out what the legal means in order to bring him to account on his tax affairs and on his business affairs? Because there will be obvious uh, suspicions anyway uh, that uh, he is uh, 
getting himself even richer by trading on the U.S. name, uh, using it the right. White House well, as a sort I, of sale, I, sales um, place. So, so there will be avenues through which, I mean, there will be, in, there'll be some high entertainment one there, as, as Trump lackeys have brought before and asked to explain their accounting methods. Well, I think I think there will be some of that. Um, you know, not controlling Congress is a is a problem for the Democrats in that they don't have the investigative apparatus at their disposal. Uh, had they had they uh, regained control of the um, Senate, it might have been different, but they didn't. And so, um, you know, I think the the uh, the accountability is left to journalists. It's left to outside groups. I, I think um, in Congress, there there's going to be somewhat limited. Yeah. That's a, that's a depressing prospect. That means that, uh, on the whole, he can get almost anything through he wants. And looking at these early uh, runners and riders uh, in his transition team to be appointed, uh, it, he's obviously not compromising, is he? Not really. I mean, well, you know, the process is, is um, still at its beginning, and, and, you know, we'll see uh, what it looks like when it's complete. But thus far, this is... Um, you know, if you look at the the five uh, men who have been, um, you know, either appointed jobs in the White House or nominated for cabinet level uh, jobs, um, it's a pretty hard line. It's pretty, uh, you know, it's not a lot of outreach. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you imagine that uh, these people like uh, Jeff Sessions and uh, so on who have a colorful past, do you think that... Uh, they will make gaffes, or do you think they're going to be amazingly well-behaved? Um, well, it's an excellent question. Um, you know, uh, some, I, I guess, are more predisposed to gaffes or not. I mean, I think Bannon will be in, the most interesting to watch because he's been, the, you know, probably the most flamboyant of those who've been appointed. So, um, you know, we'll see what he says uh, publicly going forward, how big a profile he has. It's it's hard to define a gaffe though, Nicholas, in this era, right? What's you know what's what's a gaffe? Saying that uh, you're going to prohibit true. Muslims from entering the U.S., right? I mean, who knows what a gaffe is now? Yes, you're absolutely right. The uh, the whole thing is extraordinary. It, uh, I, I mean, Trump went through what thirty red lights, didn't he? I mean, he, uh, every single thing that you in a, I mean, it, it's the textbook case of what you don't do if you want to get elected. And yet, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think you know the Billy Bush tape is, you know, I, we, we've had. I I, I, don't, I just don't know how you could define a gaffe at this point. Exactly. I mean, you used to do something, have to do something heinous like get caught on a boat called Monkey Business with a couple of uh, girls in bikinis. And that right. was enough to stop people once, you know. I that mean, we live in a rough, rough age, don't we? God, it, the whole thing has coarsened. Do you find that distressing, the way that the discourse is coarsened as time's gone on? Well, um, look, I, 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 I don't... Um, uh, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want the reverse situation where people are drummed out of politics or, or uh, you know, because they say something colorful that they, you know, didn't quite mean and they, they're not allowed to take it back. And, and you know, I don't yeah. want a, prude, a politics of, of prudery that is too prohibitive. On the other hand, um, you know, I think we're... You get to the point where any, you know, uh, a politician is kind of endlessly forgiven for 
for things that are so outrageous, that's um, that itself is disturbing as well. <laughs> Absolutely right. Now, uh, tell me, what do you make of uh, the extraordinary uh, public performance of uh, the introduction of Mitt Romney, like a bit part into the soap opera, who was allowed to come in? To right, 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 so right. Um, well, I thought, you know, I guess the, interpret the initial interpretation was he's reaching out to old enemies. I thought, uh, you know, you could see it more as a rubbing it in his face. Uh, now, you know, now maybe, maybe he'll he will be named to some secretary of state, but I, I find that I still find that hard to fathom. Uh, I I think um, I don't think that that will happen. No, it seems most unlikely. The uh, the <laughs> awkwardness of the body language with uh, Mitt Romney, a strange tiptoe, as if he's on he's as if he's a ballerina or something. He doesn't quite walk. With yeah, so I mean, it was Trump uh, has this lumbering bear-like presence. Yeah, I mean it's. Um, I mean the the animus between them, uh, you know, grew very quickly, and of course it, um, you know, was either reflected by or or helped speed the the Mormon you know disillusionment with Trump, which was so noticeable in the primaries and the general. Uh, so it's a uh, strange times. <laughs> Very strange times indeed. We've been talking to uh, Matt Cooper, and we're, after this next break, we're going to resume our conversation about the extraordinary events uh, which we're following, which is the installation of the new Trump government. to the Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Nicholas Wapshot, and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek. And uh, I have with me my dear friend and colleague, the political editor of Newsweek, Matt Cooper. And, uh, well, uh, we should maybe spare a, a short moment to talk about the, the late uh, deceased Hillary Clinton. Uh, is that the end of the Clintons? Do, do we have to not see them ever again now? Oh, <coughs> you never know with the Clintons, right? Uh, I, I, I certainly... You know, I think it's, it's. I was trying to think under what circumstances could she, could she ever run for anything again? And the only thing would be if, if they were stupid enough to try to prosecute her. And I think, I think maybe if she was literally martyred by the, uh, <laughs> by the Trump Justice Department, she might run again. But otherwise, no. I think uh, we're we're very much on the downslope of of the Clinton. Um, Clinton years and and how they choose to um, you know spend this time of their life uh, will will be interesting to watch. Yeah, well, I wish them well. Actually, I mean, you know, for, it's an amazing act. It's an extraordinary performance. Thirty years worth of high drama lived in the public eye. No, and, absolutely. Uh, actually, I, it, I it seems more or less that they're, we'll they're, they're still relatively decent wife. people. Yeah, I can't imagine we'll see husband-wife presidential candidates again anytime soon, but. Uh, but who knows? <laughs> I spend, maybe I speak. Yeah, 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 it could be. So, so, so where does that leave the Democratic Party? They, would, do they need a sort of savior? They need a sort of 40-year-old, handsome, what, or, or beautiful or whatever, uh, hero who connects somehow with blue-collar people in the lakes, but at the same time is sophisticated and at the same time is maybe 
maybe ethnic. I don't know. I mean, if you were if you were central casting and you were saying this is the person we think you ought to have, who would you suggest they have? Well, I I, I don't think we know yet. Um, yeah, I think the um, <clears throat> the bench has been fairly empty, right? Because. I mean, the ch only challengers for this nomination on the Democratic side were the very short-lived candidacies of the of the hapless Lincoln Chafee and Martin O'Malley, and then the septuagenarian socialist uh, Bernie Sanders. So we haven't really been introduced yet to the great fresh faces of the of the new Democratic Party, and, and we'll see. Uh, you know. If it's uh, you know fire, fiery uh, progressives like Elizabeth Warren uh, or Sherrod Brown from Ohio, if it's um, you know uh, um, a legacy governor like Cuomo, we just uh, we don't know yet. Yeah, they're in the outer field, aren't they? I mean, if you look at uh, the way that Obama rose and the way that Clinton rose, you know, they were just, they were on the edge of the field there somewhere, and just. They made a run for it, I guess. And, uh, but we're going to know relatively soon, because although uh, this has been a traumatic election, it's, uh, we're only four years away from the next one. And uh, the, the Dems are going to have to get saddled up relatively soon, aren't they, in order, if they're going to make any impact? Well, I, I think so. And I, I think that, you know, before that, they need a, a congressional strategy to figure out, you know, do they... Um, do they fight everything? Do they try to work with uh, President Trump where they can? Um, I think that'll be an issue, sort of massive resistance versus occasional cooperation. Yeah, Chuck Schumer was sort of suggesting that he was going to do a sort of cafeteria approach and anything that he could right. do with, like, the, the trillion-dollar stimulus. I mean, you know, what's not to like, for goodness sake? Right. I, uh, I, if, I if, the, if the Republicans would swallow that, that would be a great idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I imagine they will buy. Uh, they will be more cooperative than Mitch McConnell was. Yeah, not, not difficult. That's, that's, that's not hard. High yeah, or low bar, which would, whichever way you look at it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, it's uh, interesting. Does uh, Nancy Pelosi? She hangs on in the, there in the house. Does she? She survives. Uh, well, she's mostly, um, you know. Uh, well-liked leader, she's, you know, the way the way you stay leader, get to be leader, stay leader, is to understand your members' needs, uh, to really stroke them and take care of them, to impose discipline when you have to. Uh, mostly it's a matter of being loved more than feared. Um, but we'll see. Something like this can really shake, uh, can shake a conference or a caucus in the, in the Congress. And, um, you know, she is 74. There's only so long you can do that job. And uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I, I would tend to think she holds on, but I, I wouldn't be certain. Yeah. It's, I must say the stamina of these people is extraordinary. 74 years old, as you say. Even Trump, 70 years old. An obese man of 70. No, it's really, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a redefine the 70s. <laughs> I mean, I think 70s. <laughs> now, yeah, right, 70 is the new 50 or something. 70 is the new 50, yeah. so... Um, it's just, no, it's, yeah. well, so at, at the same time, I mean, it, it's high risk if you're going to take someone old because people die in harness. You know, 70 to 78 is the very dangerous uh, period for, for men. Yeah, and, and, in which you case, know, in which mean, case uh, you know, the, ch the choice of Pence will have turned out to be a critical one or may well turn out to be. Uh, look, there's no question we have presidents uh, pass away in office. And, um, yeah, it's, it's always an important choice who the vice president is. Um, 
it, even if Wilson, you get Eckhart Woodrow Wilson, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm I'm sure it's pretty instant too. That's not, the thing that, is, it's not like the rest of us were, you know, kind of responsible for remembering to get that test done or whatever. I mean, they're they're going to get it done. <clears throat> yeah, I guess that. I think actually that explains why the Duke of Edinburgh, who's 94, I think, uh, you know, is still standing up. You know. Well, exactly. I mean, my God, the Queen. Yeah. Now she's had some good health care. I think that's the program I was looking for. But I'm not that's sure true. how much it costs that's the taxpayer. Yeah. In Britain. So, um, what's your just right at this stage? Snap, snap thought. Uh, do you think that it's, he's a one-term or a two-term president? And do you think that uh, he is going to disgrace himself in some way and leave uh, Mike Pence to take over in whatever awkward circumstances? Um, well, let's not. <laughs> it's it's uh, that's speculative beyond belief. But um, I would, you know, I, I think he can have a scandal and survive, right? I mean, I think you're 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 juxtaposing it like a scandal is something that would end the presidency. <laughs> But I don't think that's really. You see, you have, Matt, think, you see, you have think, learned uh, something from. You, you've learned something from this election, haven't you? Which is that the normal rules, and it's not that they don't apply; they're upside down. So the things I'm suggesting, you're quite rightly saying, <laughs> that will actually be in his favour, make him more popular. Yeah, I think Watergate. I mean, if you think of Watergate as the model for that, it really only works if you have a Democratic Congress and a. You know, uh, uh, a press that's particularly dogged and a public that's outraged. If you don't have a public that's outraged or a dogged press or a uh, opposition party in charge of the investigative apparatus, really, um, you know, it's it's a tree falls in the forest kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess his IRS problems will be cleared up pretty soon. Yeah, I mean... Um, Yes, I, 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 and 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 the IRS problems of others may just be beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, well, I mean, Linda Johnson did uh, use the IRS. I think Roosevelt actually did. Uh, the IRS is a very useful tool for an executive power. Well, no question. Out. But well, do, do you? Yeah. Uh, do you think he will um, finally publish his tax returns? No. I don't believe we will ever see his tax returns. Unless unless some, someone at the IRS leaks them. But he will never will yeah. really publish them. At this point, why would he? And I mean, what about the President of the United States? People to say, and that's, you know, that's, uh, I, think the, I think the train's left the station on that one. As, as President of the United States, does he have to show his tax returns? Oh, does he have to show it? I don't. I don't think he's obliged. I think it's become customary. But I, it's an excellent question, Nicholas. But I don't believe he does. I think it's uh, it's just the custom. You see, we Brits always get a lot of stick for not having a written constitution. We make it up as we go along. But when it comes to it, actually, there are very important things, as Trump has shown, which are just custom and practice and have nothing to do no, with the constitution I, I, at all. No, I will never berate you for not having a constitution. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe Matt it was written by Jesus. <laughs> Quite right. Nor chiseled in stone. Matt no. Cooper, uh, political editor of the Newsweek. Uh, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. As ever, a highly entertaining chat. Thank you, and Nicole. a great ramble over. The, See you great with you pleasure. Thank you.
uh, see you at the office. Uh, it, so here we are. Uh, this is the uh, running up to the end now of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm sorry if you were expecting Leslie and got me instead. I'm Nicholas Swapshot, and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek. And uh, I've had uh, four very nice guests. And I, if you stay for the whole two hours, I think you'll agree that some of them said some surprising things. Thank you very much indeed. Very good to meet you. Bye.